0: You can join me in opening your Bibles to the second chapter of John, the Gospel according to John. We're just beginning a study of the life and ministry of Jesus, the good news of regarding Jesus in the Gospel account that John gives us. So it's the fourth Gospel. And as you turn there, if I can ask you to think about how you might answer the question, where does one go? Where does one go in order to meet with God? God. Where does one go in order to meet with God? How do we answer that? I suppose we might answer and say one goes anywhere to meet with God because God is omnipresent and God is without limits. Fair enough. But where does one go to meet with God if there is sin involved? So if I have sin, which is against God, A synonym for sin would be trespass, violation. If God has a law and I'm supposed to treat God like God and I've violated that, I've trespassed His law, I've sinned, I've rebelled, I now have conflict with God, to use biblical statements, I'm now God's enemy, where does one go to meet with God? Maybe making it more complex, maybe not. But for now, let's even forget about what happened some 2,000 years ago with Jesus. Let's, let's not think like Christians. Good job if you were. Where does one go to meet with God if you have sin? If there's conflict between you and God, where do you go? You, 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 you can't go directly to God. If I know anything about the Bible, I might not know much, but I know a few things. If I know anything about the Bible, you can't go directly to God. Where do you go? Because you need a mediator. You need a priest. I know anything about the Old Testament. Because you need atonement. I need my sins to be dealt with and I need someone who's on a good relationship basis with God to go as my go-between. Where does one go to get that? Not just anywhere. According to the way God has, has graciously set it up, according to His love and mercy and kindness, one goes to the temple to meet with God. You have to go to the temple. If you are a transgressor, a trespasser, a sinner, and you are, in order to meet with God in a good sense, in order to worship and be welcomed by God, in order for that to happen, you have to go according to what God has provided. And what God has provided is God has provided atonement. God has provided an intercessor, a mediator, and he has provided priests so that you can go to God and not be treated and given what you deserve, which would be condemnation. I realize this is foreign to us as Christians, and we were all quick to say, you don't have to go anywhere to meet with God. We just meet with God wherever we are. And all of that assumes a lot of things. And I'm just asking you to momentarily to put that on hold because we want to better understand who Jesus is and we want to understand how great He is and how significant and how central He he is to God's purposes for us. And to do that, we have to know a thing or two about where to go to meet with God. And we have to know a thing or two to know uh, enough to know that we can't just meet with God because we're rebels and He's just and we don't want what we deserve. Temple. I'm not really a fan of temples. I would never want to say this is Omaha Bible Temple. This isn't a temple. This is a church. But in another sense, I want to be a fan of temples. Because Jesus is the true temple. And so we've got to understand this. You see, God didn't just decide one day, I think I'll send my son. You know, plan A didn't really work. I think I'll come up with a new plan. The Jesus plan. No, all along there's been a plan. In fact, to use biblical terminology, before the foundation of the world there's been a plan. Pre-Exodus, pre-Genesis, there's been a plan to have everyone see and know that the culminating high point, focus of everything, the universe revolves around Jesus. Jesus. So what we want to do is know a thing or two about history, how to meet with God, how to deal with sin, atonement, intercessors, priests, and then we say Jesus. Okay? Ready? Hope so. Hope it's helpful. We're in John 2. We're looking at Jesus cleansing the Old Testament temple. Okay? We look at the, we might call the angry Jesus. Maybe the Jesus you didn't learn about in Sunday school. Um... It's the second sign, okay? So in John, we have a bunch of signs in the first half of the book to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited deliverer king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And we looked at the water to wine last time, showing he's Messiah. And today we're going to see him cleansing the Old Testament temple, the place where you go, the place where you must go in order to meet with God. Okay, so it was the tabernacle before that. Now it's the temple and here we go. Ready? Okay, let's go ahead and and look at this sign, the cleansing of the temple. Verse 12 of John chapter two. After this, that is the water to wine incident in Cana, sign number one. He went down to Capernaum. This is the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's the northern region. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Don't need to observe much. They get away from it all. They're in the Galilee, the Galilee region, around the Sea of Galilee, and he's there with his mother, he's there with his brothers, he's there with his disciples, a little bit of downtime. Yes, Jesus had brothers. Folklore says he doesn't have brothers. The Bible says he did have brothers. He was virgin conceived, born of a virgin. That doesn't mean his mother stayed a virgin her whole life because sex is good between married people. So Jesus had, we might call them half-brothers, right? But he did, in fact, have brothers. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. I probably should read it differently. The Passover, right? The greatest feast in all of Israel, The one. This is the one you look forward to. This is the one you're excited about if you're a Jew. We're going to go to Jerusalem. It's Passover. This is awesome. The Passover of of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is exciting. They're going to go to the temple. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to travel some roughly 100 miles, Capernaum to Jerusalem. They're going to make the trek. It's going to be awesome. We already learned about Passover from Exodus chapter 12. They're going to go to the temple that was built by Solomon. Then it was destroyed. Then it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Then it was renovated by Herod shortly before this. The Passover, dramatic deliverance God provides. Exodus, this is awesome. We're commemorating that great event that happens in Exodus chapter 12. The historian Josephus tells us that there could have been as many as three million people teaming into the city. It's not like that was their population, but if you're a Jew, whether you're where Jesus was or somewhere else, you got to go to Jerusalem. This is it. If you were a little boy or a little girl, you would have more than likely, if it were me, I would have loved Passover. You get to see relatives. It's like a big feast. It's a giant party, celebration, honoring the Lord. But the food is delicious. Right? I mean, this is going to be the event. and. Yes, you could lose sight of the spiritual side of things, but it should remind you God's great, extraordinary, awesome, delivering power. Wow, this is going to be wonderful. And I'm not reading too much into it. It's Passover. Verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. We know it's not in the temple because the people wouldn't be there, but the temple area, the temple footprint, and the the most outward aspect would be where the worst kind of people would be who meet with God, and they would be the Gentiles, so there's no question this is the, the court of the Gentiles because they're, they're not going to set this, this up and get in the way of the Jews. <laughs> they're going to get in the way of the Gentiles. So there's really, there's really no debating that even though it doesn't use that designation. That would have been where they would be set up if they were set up. Now you're already reading this and I'm already reading it thinking, this is bad. Right? We're conditioned to read it that way. Selling trying to make money, corruption, this is, this is a bad thing. But just for the sake of trying to understand a little bit better, I, I want to say, let's just back up and say, and remember, a lot of times things that start good become bad. Because in one sense, if you were traveling from where Jesus was just traveling, let's say, and you've got a hundred mile trek in the Middle Eastern desert, you, you're going you're gonna to love all the animals with you? Or would you rather show up and buy some good quality animals when you get there? If you're going to go on a family vacation this summer to Death Valley and spend a week in Death Valley, are you going to pack the milk in your car? No, you might bring your favorite kind of things and put them in a freeze them. You're going to get there and you're going to buy the milk when you get there because that would just be convenient and that makes sense. Not a perfect illustration, but you get the idea. More than likely, I'm going to buy the, buy the lamb when I get there. This is super helpful. This is good. In and of itself, it wouldn't be a problem... It's a, con- a matter of convenience. They could convert the money so that it's the approved currency. It's a valuable service. But they're not across the street, as even historically they may have one time been. They're where the Gentiles are supposed to be welcomed. And so there is a problem. It's a major problem. Because if you want to meet with God and you are a sinner, oh, and we know Gentiles, they're sinners. They're the godless. They've got to have atonement. They've got to have a mediator. They've got to have a priest. They've got to be able to come to the temple. And we don't have room for them. Because... We can make money because it's better business. Who, who knows of the level of all the different kinds of complexities of the corruption. But it's corrupt by now. We need to remember that even in the Old Testament, the temple is designated as not only for the Jews. In fact, one of the missions of the Jewish people was that they were to help Gentiles know the one true and living God. Okay. It was even in the design of the temple. It was supposed to be this way. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to turn there. But 1 Kings chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 56 would be two helpful texts. I'll just read a portion from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country... For your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner, Gentile, calls to you in order that, how about this? In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as do your people Israel. It's to be an outreach. They're to be a missionary people. We, we, we say He's the God of Israel. It's true He's the God of Israel. But He's the one true God. And so if you're going to know the one true God, you've got to know the God of Israel. You have to know Yahweh, the unique one. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. We can start cross-referencing now and say, actually, this didn't start with the temple. This goes back to Abrahamic covenant and uh, to be a blessing to the nations, not just those connected to Abraham. I'm making a big deal out of this, and perhaps you're thinking, get on with it already. Okay, fair enough, but... I think that helps us understand the scenario and what's going on here. There was supposed to be a place for them by design. And you know what else is going to be interesting? There's an emphasis in John that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. So it's no coincidence. Jesus is the one and only Savior, so He didn't only come for the Jews, He came for Jews and Gentiles, and we're gonna see that a lot in John, the world emphasis. It's always been to be this way. And so, it's important that we see, this is, this is, a, this is a huge problem. He came for the Jews and the Gentiles. And one of the reasons Jesus is about ready to get super angry, you know, hold on to your kippas, hold on to your skullcaps, is because they were to be telling the world about the Savior. And they're not. And Jesus is going to do what he does because of that. And it will make it clear as we go through John, he's the Savior of Jew and Gentile. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. How about that? It's my father's house. Therefore, I have authority to do this. And that will get further and further developed. But that's a huge statement that he's making there. This is the angry Jesus. Because this Jesus is the savior of the world. Verse 17. Gotta calm down and get some composure. His disciples remembered... That it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Exactly when they remembered what the details were. I don't know, but they remembered. Oh, they're connecting dots. David, ultimate David. The deliverer, ruler, king, the most famous one. The one who far overshadows that one. Whoops. A little too excited. Psalm 69, Messianic Psalm. These are people who memorize and memorize Scripture and know these things. Expectation. Oh, this action looks like what we read about when it would come to our champion unmatched, awesome king, King David. Now, I do want to have us take a moment or two looking at Psalm 69 because there's even more there than, than is referenced. Not everything in Psalm 69 relates to Jesus because originally Psalm 69 is about David and David is a sinner man after God's own heart. Yes, he is a Messiah, anointed, deliverer, special king to deliver the people. Yes, warrior. But while everything doesn't relate to him, or, or, but while it all relates to King David, it doesn't all relate to Jesus. Actually, a lot of things do. And Psalm 69 is fascinating because it's about David doing the right things. And yet, experiencing all kinds of bad things as a result. There's this injustice that happens. David stands for righteousness. David does the right thing. David is bold, not in everything, but in tons of things. And it doesn't go well for him in a lot of ways. And so you can just see this is anticipating the ultimate David who would do all of the right things. And it wouldn't go well for him. Okay, so the disciples are saying, We remember David having this passion for purity when it comes to the worship of God. It's zealous and consuming. Ah, Jesus looks like the Messiah. That's, that's what's happening. So, but, but I do want you to see Psalm 69. Psalm 69 uh, says in verse 1 Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Lots of figurative language of trouble, despair, difficulty. I need your help. Verse 3. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Persecution, suffering for righteousness is the idea. How long until you deliver me? Verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. See, it's Injust or unjust mighty are those who would destroy me those who attack me with lies again They're not true accusations. They're false ones what uh, I did not steal must I now restore that would be uh, again uh, An unjust kind of thing verse 5. Oh god, you know my folly none with jesus It would have been true with the first david. He wasn't perfect. The wrongs. I have done are not hidden from you Verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame. He's talking about himself through me and those he affects and leads. O Lord God of hosts, you're a God of victory, you're a God of warfare. Don't, don't let this keep happening to me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. By the way, in John chapter 7, we're going to see this in relation to Jesus because not even his brothers believe him. Verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There's our text that they're remembering. They're thinking, oh, this is like Psalm 69, the Davidic psalm that we all learned in Shabbat school. It's coming to mind now. Sabbath school. Sabbath school. Verse 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. See, I tried to do the right thing, I did the right thing, and it ended badly. Verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. They just made fun of me. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Maybe for the sake of time, skip to 14. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Verse 15, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Verse 17, hide not your face from your servant for I am in distress. Verse 19 says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. How about verse 21 toward the end? For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Sound familiar? Verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. And I just started cherry picking there some of the high points. The whole idea is great, 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 imperfect King David sought purity and pure worship and devotion to God and it was met met with hostility even by those close to him. Injustice. Prefiguring, always anticipating, finding its fulfillment in the ultimate David born in the line of David who would do everything absolutely perfectly right on behalf of the people he represents just like the former King David, and it would be met with opposition. So to whatever degree, these disciples are connecting dots. The messianic expectation. And they're thinking Jesus is the one. Why is he doing what he's doing? Well, it's going to be met with hostility, but... To one degree or another, they're saying, that's what David would have done. That's what our great king would have done that we've been learning about from our parents and our grandparents. That was very David-like. Maybe he's the one. Okay, back on track, John chapter 2. Back to the house cleaning. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? On one level, that's the right question for them to ask. Okay, you're going you're to do what you just did? Some people might even be saying, that, that's what David would do. It's about time somebody showed up and, and dealt with this problem. Show us a sign to prove that you have the authority to do what you just did. Jews expected a restored temple. But they want a sign. They want a sign behind, beyond, beyond the sign, if you will. You could say he just showed them a sign. But they want a sign to prove the sign. Verse 19. Look it with me if you would. Jesus answered them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I'm going to come back to this, but for now, just just hear those words, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What would you have thought? What would I have thought? We'll come back to that if I remember. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They hear Jesus with wooden literalism. And we're going to see that that maybe wasn't the right way to hear Him. But isn't it interesting that they're saying, there's no way you could do the seemingly impossible. And the reality is, The seemingly impossible because of all these years, get this, by comparison, would be easy compared to what Jesus is really going to do. See what I'm saying or not? It would be super, super, super easy for Jesus to do the seemingly impossible, to rebuild the temple in three days. Because he's supernatural. I mean, that would just be nothing for God. But their seemingly impossible is going to be far outdone by the extraordinarily impossible, if you will. Dead bodies don't get raised. It's even better. I mean, they're like, no way. And he's like, way. <sighs> capital W, way, you, you have no idea. You have, you have no idea who you're dealing with. We probably wouldn't have either. The seemingly impossible would be outdone by the truly impossible. Verse 21 says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Bodily resurrection would be the sign of signs. listen to this the greater living and true temple comes to them they destroy it and it is raised anew and to the benefit of those who destroyed it i mean this is all so surfacey compared to what is lying underneath you know what lies beneath we know a lot about what lies beneath, but I mean, just here, it's just fascinating to think man, what lurks under the water? They have no idea. And it's for good, not for terror. Again, Just to repeat that because I think it's helpful. The greater living and true temple comes to them. They destroy it and it is raised anew to the benefit of those who destroy it. They do not know who they're dealing with. And we wouldn't have either, I don't think. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered That he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Way right, it's like wow. Jesus' statement here is an about the temple is an absolute game changer. How would you have answered? or how would you have understood him? If I'm standing there and Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again, unless he's going, you know, hint, we have no reason to believe that, I would think he was talking about the physical temple. Seems that they all who were originally there thought he was talking about the physical temple. That tells me, at least for starters, we probably need to learn to interpret Jesus from Jesus. What does Jesus mean when He says things? It may very well be that we don't know. We need Jesus to interpret Jesus. We need Jesus to help us interpret the Bible. The Jews were waiting for a redone temple. Who would have thought he was talking about himself? I wouldn't have thought that. I don't think you would have thought that. Some seminary professors would probably give Jesus a D minus when it comes to Bible interpretation. Just speaking a little nastily for a moment. Well, we know he couldn't mean himself because he's not a temple. He's Jesus. He's a human. And context determines meaning, and in the context it's the temple. Being a little bit nasty. Mean spirited. Yeah, context determines meaning, but trumping context of physical temple is Jesus saying, "It's me." It's me. Wow. I'm so glad I'm so glad I would have been wrong. It's exciting. We don't have time to go there and I I punted at the last minute but maybe we'll do it another time but I was working through Hebrews 9 where it talks about a temple and another temple and, and it talks about moving from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And what's interesting is, the argument in the book of Hebrews is, the most real is the heavenly, not the physical. Whereas I think the most real is the physical, not the heavenly. It just turned my paradigm upside down. Anticipated, preview, type, picture, Jesus, ultimate reality, because it was always to be Him from the very beginning. Hebrews 9 will just mess with your theology. It's wonderful. And you know it's right because you know ultimate in Hebrews, according to chapter 1, is Jesus. Again, we go back to, to shadow hugging. If I'm away from my wife, I have a picture. I'm looking at that picture. Picture's great, reminds me of who she is. You know, when nobody's looking, if I've been gone for a long time, who knows? I might even kiss the picture. Get desperate sometimes, right? I don't know. Just for the record, I've never done that in my life. (laughs) Unless, honey, you like that, then I've done it a lot. (laughs) But when we're reunited, (laughs) face-to-face substance, it would be obscene, ridiculous, and crazy and insulting if I were kissing the picture instead of my wife just an analogy not original I borrowed it from somewhere else he is the substance he is the one He is the true temple. Where do you go to meet with God? You go to meet with God by going to Jesus because he is the mediator. He is the priest. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the spotless lamb. If you want to know God and meet with God and not die in the process, you go to Jesus. He is the temple. He's the one. He's not the shadow. He's the substance. This is amazing and extraordinary and that's why if we go back to the beginning of how we started, that's why you could say, when I say, where do you go to meet with God? That's why you could say, and some of you were saying in your minds, I don't go anywhere, I go to Jesus. Good job. But the only way you would really know the significance of that is to know about temple and to know about sacrifice and to know about priesthood and to know about atonement and to know about what He was always the fulfillment of it's exciting it's wonderful but once again it's not altogether true but it's kind of true many times true with a little bit of humor I don't care what your question is Jesus is the answer (laughs) not really right He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the deliverer. He's where you go to know God and meet with God. Isn't it interesting, Jew or Gentile in our context? That is all awesome, but we have to end on a low note. Sorry. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, remember, awesome, amazing, extraordinary, favorite time of year, many believed all that appears to be so good and right and awesome. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, first blush, you're like, hallelujah, on track, awesome, because we know according to chapter 20, this is what's supposed to happen. He does the signs, they see he's Messiah, and they believe in him, man, it's working out just like we would anticipate. Verse 24, and Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. You can write in your margin if you would like. Same word as used in verse 23 as believed. Many believed in Jesus and Jesus didn't believe in them. Wah 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 wah! I mean, you're just like what? The the wind is out of my sails. This is not right. Something is wrong. Something's amiss. We wanted them to believe. They're supposed to believe, and they believe. But Jesus doesn't believe in their belief. Because he knew all people. Oh, yeah, that's what's wrong. He's not wrong. There's something wrong with them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. (sighs) Thankfully, it doesn't end there. And you can read this as what a downer. Or you can read it as, to be literal, and I'm not being crass about this, the God-honest truth, right? This is how it really was. People were believing, but it wasn't genuine belief. It wasn't for the right reasons, or however you want to look at it. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't earnest. The good news is, more happens. There are more signs. Jesus does more. The Spirit works. Probably not a coincidence that in the next chapter we're going to see that the Holy Spirit has to regenerate people, which, by the way, brings about true saving faith. So we can start putting these pieces together. You can see the one true, genuine, ultimate Davidic deliverer, Messiah, temple-fulfilling King. You could even con- conclude. You could even. Con- c- c- you could even conclude some right things about Him. You could even believe in Him, but it's not genuine saving faith because that actually can't come from what's in unaided, left alone men and women. We've got to have the regenerating work of the Spirit in chapter 3 to change their hearts, to bring about genuine saving faith. Ah, we can be happy. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So let's not end on a downer entirely because we're coming to chapter 3 and it's going to be awesome. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the candidness of Scripture, the honesty of Scripture, even to, to say what's really true. We would never know that their faith wasn't genuine. And yet you tell us. And we're thankful to know that there is such a thing as faith that is not saving faith. I pray for those who are here today that they would believe in Jesus, but not merely like this. They would believe in a genuine sense so that Jesus would know and Jesus would know that it's genuine, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled, that we might have our sins atoned for, that we might come to know that we need Jesus to be our Passover lamb. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.